Welcome, everybody. Good morning, good afternoon, uh, good evening, wherever you are in the world today. Uh, my name is Michael Victor. I am the head of communications and knowledge management at the uh, International Livestock Research Institute of the CGIR. Uh, I'd like to welcome you today to CGIR seminar series on strengthening food systems uh, resilience, organized by uh, IPFRI and supported by the German Federal Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development, BMZ. Today, we're taking a deep dive into livestock and alternative protein section of the CGIR breakthrough report. And we're really asking the question, can sustainable livestock systems and alternative proteins address the climate crisis as well as uh, feed the world as well? So we're eager to hear from you throughout this session and to participate in our question and answer sessions please submit your questions on ipfree.org, on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag uh, AskIpfree on Twitter or on X. Uh, so with that, I would like to uh, uh, introduce uh, Jan Bricks, who's the Senior Policy Officer uh, at the Division of Agriculture and Rural Development for the German Federal Ministry of, for Cooperation and Development, uh, BMZ. Uh, and welcome to him to give some opening remarks. Thank you. Hello, good morning, good afternoon to everyone, also from my side. Um, it is my great pleasure to welcome you all to today's policy seminar. And first of all, I want to thank IFPRI for hosting our joint CGIAR BMZ policy series, the seminar series. For over 50 years now, CGIAR has been a leader in delivering critical science and innovation to transform our agriculture and food systems, with Germany as a reliable partner since its beginnings. I'm excited that today's seminar will take a closer look at livestock, climate and food systems, a topic of high relevance to the BMZ. Our global agriculture and food systems are broken. They do not only fail to provide sufficient, affordable, and nutritious food for all, but they also destroy their very own ecological foundations. Livestock is an important driver of deforestation, climate change, and biodiversity loss. Overconsumption of animal source food bears alarming costs to human health. With all this is true, let us not fall victim to one-sided narratives. In Africa, where many of BMZ partner countries are located, livestock contributes to the livelihoods of around 80% of poor households. Livestock offers important economic opportunities and jobs. By owning and managing livestock, women and young people can generate their own income. Animal source foods are a valuable source of proteins, vitamins, and minerals for poor people in areas where other nutritious foods are not always available. Despite this overwhelming socio-economic and ecological importance of livestock in our partner countries, the sector is often neglected by policy and finance. For example, only 1% of climate finance flows into the livestock sector that is both strongly affecting and severely affected by climate change. Against this backdrop, I have read the Achieving Agricultural Breakthrough Report with much interest. The recommendations came in timely as we are currently renewing our strategic focus on sustainable livestock systems. 
Livestock is a key component of the BMZ course area strategy, sustainable agri-food systems, a world without hunger. In this strategy, we lay out our support for the preservation of the genetic diversity of livestock, advocate for equal land use rights, especially for women and pastoralist communities, promote capacity strengthening along value chains, support access to animal source foods for vulnerable groups, and champion context-specific development pathways with high resource use efficiencies. For example, BMZ supported the program for climate smart livestock, which was implemented by GIZ, the World Bank and ILRI from 2018 until 2021. The program supported key actors in the livestock sector to increasingly include climate change adaption and mitigation in, in their practices, strategies, and investment projects. In 2022, we supported a selected one CGIAR research initi initiative with 21 million euros, amongst which the initiative on livestock and climate. So as you can see, BMZ has put the transformation of agriculture and food systems at the heart of it, its agenda, with livestock playing a key, key role. Broken agriculture and food systems are not inevitable, but fixing them requires all hands on deck. So now, by saying this, I look forward to listening to this seminar and hearing your suggestions on how sustainable livestock systems can become a key driver for the transformation of our agriculture and food systems. Thank you. Excellent. Uh, thanks so much, Jan, and really thanks for laying out the, the challenge that we have in the livestock sector, as well as showing the importance of livestock in the developing world. Uh, and with that, I'd like to uh, welcome uh, my director, uh, Professor Apollinaire Dejikang, who is the Director General of uh, the International Livestock Research, as well as the Interim Managing Director of the CGIR Science Group on uh, Resilient Agri-Food Systems, to provide some remarks as well. Over to you, Apollinaire. Thank you, Michael. I'm truly delighted to join you today. And I want to thank IFPRI and BMZ for making this session possible. When I saw the title of this webinar, I got excited because it sums up the following, the wicked problems that faces the livestock sector at the nexus of food systems and climate. The key challenge is how can we meet the needs of growing demand of the growing population in the global south while staying within the planetary boundaries? This is the primary challenge that we at the International Livestock Research Institute and the CGIR are trying to solve. And within that, as Michael mentioned, within the resilient agri-food systems and the CGIR, we're trying to address this question. Jan has introduced the conundrum that we face in the livestock sector very well. And I agree, we have a shared vision for how to address the challenges that we face. The global agenda is driven by concerns, primarily from the global north that we need to construct, contrast, that the livestock and animal source food contribute to overconsumption, industrialization, and carbon footprint. The situation is very different when you're looking at things in the global south. As an African who was raised in a smallholder farm in the western part of Cameroon, I look at this issue from a completely different perspective. The African continent indeed has historically produced 
a very, very small fraction of the global greenhouse gases emission, less than 4% by its farmers. Livestock keepers and the pastoral, pastoralists are carrying the double burden. They are affected by climate change through drought, floods, and heat stress. On top of that, farmers are being asked to multiple to mitigate emission to offset emission that, barely, that they barely contribute to. I think as an institution, we have been working really hard to ensure that we create a different narrative, that the narrative for the livestock in the global north is very different from the situation that we face in the global south. Imagine a child, a newborn, less than 1,000 days on earth, missing a glass of milk or uh, an egg on a daily basis. That's a false start in life that we can never correct anymore. By 2050, one person out of four in the planet will be from Africa, and most will be the age uh, under 30. This will necessitate us to make some decisions as, as to how to fit the growing and dynamic population. The livestock sector carry, uh, carry great optimism to, to address that problem. To solve this, we will need all types of research and innovation to transform the food systems in Africa both from livestock and alternative protein, but this will need to be dictated by what is locally appropriate and acceptable. The CGIR Breakthrough Report is a bold synthesis of potential pathways to improve productivity, help farmers adapt to the changing climate and mitigate greenhouse emissions. The report demonstrates how the CGIR is working on as one and bringing a system approach to tackling these complex problems. We have to be looking at the integrated approach and looking at new ways of solving this problem, interdisciplinarities across institutions. The transition to efficient and sustainable livestock production system requires tailored solutions that address the specific needs and constraints of each systems. At our institutions, and indeed within the CGIR, we look at that segmentation of the systems so that we can have the better solution, the most appropriate, and the most, those that are required in the short, medium, and long term. Intervention aimed at raising productivity and sustainability of livestock systems have the potential to reduce emission by up to 30%. This remarkable finding not only contributes to our effort in combating climate change, but also ensure that the livestock and nutrition needs of people who depend on it are met. To fully unlock the potential and drive meaningful changes, it is crucial for governments, organizations, and stakeholders to recognize the importance of sustainable livestock production and allocate the necessary funding and resources to support its development. I would like to congratulate the team who put together the livestock section of the report from SIAT, from ILRI, and other partners and happy to see that Fiona will be presenting later today, my dear colleague Fiona. Livestock Keepers Keeping offers African countries a gateway to food security, economic growth, and climate adaptation. Investing more climate funding to support Africans to implement more sustainable practices that help farmers and animals adapt to new extremes is not just a matter of addressing climate crisis, but a matter of climate justice. On this, I'm really looking forward to the exciting seminar today and thanking all the organizers and the participants for 
for, for making the time to be with us today. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you very much, Apollinaire. Uh, with that, we're going to enter uh, the presentation uh, section of our uh, agenda. Uh, and I would like to uh, welcome our L Lorraine Ranchi, uh, who is a CGIR Senior Advisor for Policy Impact based at IPFRI. Uh, and she'll take us uh, through a quick overview of the breakthrough report. Over to you, uh, Lorraine. Thank you. Well, I just wait for the slides up. Um, as Michael said, my name is Lorraine Ronke. I'm one of the co-authors of the breakthrough report. Next slide. I'm going to give you just a little bit of background and context on the breakthrough agenda. What is that? Recall that it was launched by um, the UK and Egypt at COP26 with the goal of outlining sort of a clean technology plan and a framework for countries, for businesses and civil society to strengthen actions in, in these key emitting sectors. And I think that's one important takeaway from right from the start is that the Breakthrough Agenda is very much focused on um, international action and what international collaboration can bring about. Next, please. Agriculture was not originally one of the key emitting sectors included in the Breakthrough Report. Last year, they included agriculture and WRI uh, took that first year of chapter to sort of lay the land as to why agriculture, what the key issues are, and, and a number of recommendations. And really central to those recommendations was the identification of seven technological areas. Next, please. And these seven technology areas were reduced emissions from fertilizers, alternative proteins, which we're here to discuss today, reduced food loss and waste, crop and livestock breeding, reduced methane emissions from livestock, agroecological and other sustainable approaches, and digital services. Next slide. And the idea was that signatory countries um, who sign up to the Breakthrough Agenda would then have priority international actions um, to implement recommendations. So this year, with the CGER being asked to author the agricultural chapter of the Breakthrough Report, they were asked to really focus on these seven technology, technology areas that were identified last year. Next slide, please. It's easy to understand, and I think um, both uh, Jan and Apollinaire have already sort of brought us through why agriculture, it was necessary to sort of include it into the Breakthrough Report. I mean, how much of global greenhouse gas emissions come from food systems? Most studies estimate that food and ag is responsible between 23 and 42% of GHG emissions. And what proportion of the world's population rely on the food sector for their livelihood? More than half, and most of those in the global south. The agri-food sector we know is particularly vulnerable to climate change, so producers in the global south are especially at risk. So we have this dilemma in the agri-food sector in particular, whereby we cannot reach the Paris objectives without mitigation at scale in the sector. And we have to mitigate in ways that don't lead to further hunger and food insecurity in the global south. And given its importance to livelihoods, we have maintained a very strong focus on adaptation to ensure that the resilience of those that are most vulnerable. Next. So the CG responded by producing two documents. Okay, so one is this rigorous scientific review um, compiled in this document image you see on your screen, Achieving Agricultural Breakthrough, a deep dive into seven technological areas. Basically, you had seven teams of scientists looking at the seven technology areas that uh, were commissioned for this year's breakthrough report. And they went over in about nine or 10 pages each, the state of the science, 
what is stopping the scale up or scaled uptake of these technology areas, um, sort of the innovations in these technology areas, and then some recommendations. And those recommendations span from local and domestic action all the way to international trade. But recall what I said a couple of slides ago, the focus of the breakthrough report is on international collaboration. So what we did then is based on the rigorous scientific review, we looked across the seven areas for those international collaboration actions and saw if there were patterns, if there were groups of recommendations, and indeed there were five. The other document image, whoa, on the screen is the breakthrough report itself. So the ag chapter is really a discussion of those five recommendations. Next, please. The five recommendations you see before you are very specific to scaling those seven technology innovation areas that contribute to the climate agenda. So whereas we all talk about we need more climate finance, that climate finance gap needs to be filled. This is specifically about increasing climate finance for the deployment of ag technologies and approaches for which science has generated evidence on effectiveness. Okay, so it's quite specific to that scale up. And therein, I'll unpack these very briefly a little bit to demonstrate that reducing livestock methane emissions or crop and livestock breeding or alternative proteins figure large in all five of them. For instance, in the second um, bucket of recommendations on policies, regulations, and innovations, this isn't just about countries getting together to learn from each other, but it's about identifying priority science-based agendas for those international platforms. And it specifically cites here regulatory framework and policies for new areas like alternative fertilizers and subsections of alternative protein. The third bucket is metrics, indicators, and standards, developing common metrics and indicators across all of them. So we have a common conversation, but especially called out were the um, International Agreement on Metrics, Measurements, and Reporting Methodologies for Livestock Enteric Methane Emissions. Under RD&D, we all want more finance and more investment in RD&D, but it was really focused on um, scaling what it takes to scale, what are these obstacles, what is the impact of scaling, et cetera. And therein, again, methane emissions from livestock, crop and livestock, breeding and alternative proteins were named. Finally, private sector markets and trade loomed large across all seven technological areas, but especially in livestock, um, given the importance of the private sector and the potential of the private sector for scaling climate innovations in this space. With that, Michael, I think that's sufficient background for the rest of this interesting webinar. Thank you ever so much. Excellent. No, thanks, Lorraine. I think that gives a really good understanding of where it came from and where it goes. And it's a really incredible synthesis of agriculture. Uh, with that, I'm really happy to uh, welcome uh, you know, Fiona Flinton, who's a senior scientist at ILRI, as well as the lead of the CGIR research, research initiative on uh, livestock and climate to take us through the priority sustainable livestock technologies. Over to you, Fiona. Thanks, Michael. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm going to focus in on the section on reducing livestock emissions. Um, firstly, I'd like to recognize my co-authors, co uh, Claudia, Jacobo, and Daniel who without their input, this chapter would, this section would not have happened. So livestock related methane accounts for 30% of global anthropogenic methane emissions. The majority of these emissions, about 88%, comes from enteric fermentation in the digestive tracts of ruminant animals, so cattle, sheep, goats, and released through belching. The remainder, 12%, comes from manure. 
In 2020, global livestock methane emissions were approximately 136 million tonnes. High income countries and low to middle income countries each accounted for around 50% of global livestock emissions. Going forward, emissions from high income countries are expected to stabilise, while low middle income countries are projected to increase due to a rising demand for animal source foods as population and incomes increase reaching 66% of global livestock emissions by 2050. Addressing methane from both enteric fermentation and manure management systems is therefore crucial and is a, a key component of a transition to more sustainable livestock uh, production. Uh, next slide, please. So there are two clusters of strategies and technologies for reducing methane emission as described in the report. One is to reduce enteric methane emitted from the animal itself, and the other is to reduce methane from manure. Strategies and technologies for reducing animal enteric methane differ from one livestock production system to another. Many of the technologies currently available for reducing enteric methane are limited to those production systems where there is feed provision, so where you can control what the animal is eating. That is in zero grazing and grazing with feed supplementation systems. In grazing systems with little or no supplementation, the strategies and technologies for reducing methane emissions is much more limited. There are two types of mitigation strategies to reduce enteric methane emissions. One, absolute mitigation strategies that reduce the total methane emissions without affecting animal productivity, and two, product-based strategies that reduce emissions intensity, so the methane per unit of product, whilst increasing animal productivity. Next slide, please. So to give you an idea of some of the technologies described in the section, uh, one example here is of methane inhibitors. Methane inhibitors can reduce absolute methane emissions by an average 35% and per unit of product by 32%. The most promising methane inhibitor is 3-nitrooxypropanol, or 3-NOP, which targets a specific enzyme involved in methane production by rumen microbes. Life cycle assessments over eight years or so have confirmed the sustained inhibitory effect of 3-NOP on methane production, which can be modified by nutrient composition of the diet. One such example is bovire, which is now being upscaled across Europe, Australia, and other countries. And De Dennis Reinders will join us later as one of the discussants. He's the commercial director of e EMEA bovire. Next slide, please. So from a point of view, reducing methane emissions from manure um, approaches cover all stages of manure management, including its accumulation in animal houses, collection, storage, processing, and application. Often simple interventions can reduce methane emissions from manure by just managing moisture and reducing anaerobic conditions. Options include improving covers for stored manure, particularly impermeable covers like anaerobic digesters or capturing a utilization of methane from liquid manure, storage treatments that provide mechanical or intermittent aeration, decreasing manure storage time 
and regular cleaning of liquid manure from livestock housing and storage tanks. Next slide, please. Anaerobic digesters is one example here. Uh, they utilize microorganisms to break down the organic materials like manure in an oxygen devoid environment generating biogas and nutrient rich fertilizer or digestate. Capturing biogas and burning it for energy directly reduces methane emissions and can replace fossil fuel consumption. And utilizing digestate as fertilizer enhances the mitigation effect by substituting fertilizers um, derived from fossil fuels. Um, options for biodigesters are now available at different scales. And if all collectible manure were to be utilized, um, anaerobic digester technology could produce 10 billion tons of nutrient-rich fertilizer and capture enough methane to generate up to 3,800 terawatt hours of energy. Next slide, please. However, despite the potential of many of these technologies, there are barriers to their implementation. Um, so firstly, there's a lack of supportive government policies, including public financial assistance, subsidies, uh, tax incentives, regulatory frameworks to encourage farmers to uptake or continue use of technologies and sustainable livestock practices. There's also a need on the other side to phase down existing policies, programs and fiscal support that lock in industrial meat production and consumption. There's also a need to improve the reporting um, mechanisms, processes, MRVs for livestock emissions, particularly by low middle income country governments. Um, here, many governments do not have appropriate inventory methodologies in place to report on their mitigation efforts. In addition, more streamlined and effective MRV reporting for producers could also lead to carbon market opportunities. Uh, secondly, cost and financial and market constraints. Um, so um, the review showed that many mitigation strategies um, do not offer improvements in animal productivity. So investing in these means that there are lower profits for the companies involved. Um, thirdly, the many of the technologies are still in their early stages of development and need a lot more research um, into uh, their development and then their upscaling. Fourthly, many um, of the technologies are complex um, and require additional um, awareness and capacity building to be able to use. Uh, fifthly, science, more research is needed to understand the long-term effects of technologies that have been discussed and are being cu currently implemented. Next slide, please. So as uh, Lorraine suggested, um, the recommendations um, cover very much international collaboration, um, the fostering of uh, knowledge exchanges, um, sharing more improved um, cost-effective and ap appropriate metrics and reporting systems, um, building capacity across national and regional partners, and developing collaborative, innovative, innovative collaborative uh, partnerships to invest in research. So between the commercial sector and national or um, regional universities. Um, so final slide, please. 
So just final takeaway messages from, from the section here. So firstly, promoting the adoption of multiple strategies tailored to specific livestock production um, in your management systems is important as no single strategy is likely to meet reduction commitments. Studies have shown that the effects of mitigation strategies on methane emission reduction can be additive when multiple strategies are deployed. Two, climate smart livestock practices offer a triple win by not only reducing methane emissions, but in most cases also increase productivity and enhance climate change adaptation and resilience to drought. This is of most relevance to the majority of livestock producers in low middle income countries. A combination of practices is likely to have greater returns. Commonly low cost interventions, they should be the first in line as intervention investments. Then finally, Overall, the development and implementation of mitigation technologies and strategies for reducing livestock methane emissions holds promise in contributing to global efforts to limit global warming. However, they need to be firmly placed in a broader pathway of change that focuses on a just transition to more sustainable and efficient livestock se sector, supporting dependent communities with high animal welfare concerns and accompanied by a reduced consumption of livestock products where appropriate. So thank you, Michael, over, over to you. Okay, thanks a lot, uh, Fiona, that was really good. And I think you lay a lot of groundwork for some of the discussions that we'll have, particularly around uh, looking at you know the two sides of the coin, adaptation and mitigation. Uh, with that, I'd like to welcome uh, Claudia Ringler, who is the uh, Director of Natural Resources and Resilience at IPRI. Uh, and she's going to be talking about another exciting chapter in the Breakthrough Report, which is on the role of alternative proteins. Yeah, thank you very much, Michael. Um, it was great to hear about all these efforts to directly reduce emissions in the livestock sector. Uh, but basically, you know, we have to really put all hands on deck. And so we also need to make efforts to reduce reliance, uh, our reliance on life, livestock production systems uh, directly. Alternative proteins, or APs for short, are su such an innovation that's included in the agricultural breakthrough. The co-authors here are Doug Mary, formerly with EMI, and Shakundala Tilstead, Director of the CJR Nutrition, Health, and Food Security Impact Area Platform. Next slide, please. So what are APs? They're basically protein-rich foods intended to replace those derived from traditional livestock sources such as meats, eggs, dairy, and also fish. Some are also used as feed. There is no agreed upon definition. And this, what you can see here on the screen, is what it, what's included in the breakthrough. First, foods from high protein plants like soy, almond, or oat milk. Plant-based milk substitutes now account for a whopping 15% of the U.S. milk market, a clear indication that APs are here to stay and grow. A second type of AP milk uses precision fermentation and can also be found on the market, but it's a bit more pricey. Ingredients here include yeast, sugar, and cow's milk gene sequences that create whey and casein, two of the key proteins. 
The little image, however, shows biomass fermentation grown whole mussel seafood, a mouthful, that according to its producer is free from microplastics, mercury, pesticides, antibiotics, dioxin, and PCBs. For some, however, cultivated cell-based or lab-grown proteins or meats are what APs are all about. This process uses cells extracted from animals, which are fed with nutrients such as proteins, sugars, and fats, a bit more pricey and not so easy to find on the market. The fourth type are insects, such as crickets or mealworms, quite different type of APs and much more common in lower income countries, but also pursued in higher income markets, usually as ground up flour. Importantly, benefits of APs not only relate to lower emissions, as those you can see on the right, but also reduced land and water use and water pollution. However, lower does not mean none. Some processes require glucose, cultivated meat needs animal cells, plant-based substitutes need plants, and all processes are highly energy intensive. But most of this energy can be more readily provided from renewable energy sources such as solar. Next slide, please. Given that there are so many different types of traditional and alternative proteins, their emissions also differ, of course, by source and production process. The graph on the right shows differences in emissions for traditional proteins for which we have more data. There are also, of course, differences in the quality of the proteins and protein foods. Most APs can be found in high-income markets where they aim to improve human health, the environment, and animal welfare. However, we are here today because there are important potential roles in low-income markets as well. First, if rich countries eat less animal source foods, their prices decline and poorer countries can increase their intake to recommended levels. APs are, of course, also of direct interest, for example, as high-quality protein powder from precision fermentation that can be used in humanitarian settings, for example. Next slide, please. The three major barriers to the uptake of APs are weak regulatory frameworks, economic constraints and high costs, and, of course, consumer acceptance. Food safety reviews and authorizations need to be obtained separately in each country today, and few countries even have clearly defined regulatory pathways. While house, crickets, uh, house cricket derived flour, for example, is approved by the EU, Italy stated it would ban it for use in pizza and pasta. Labeling also remains a contested issue. The costs to produce at scale are high for most types of APs, making it difficult for new entrants, limiting growth and diversity. Public support is also negligible and in fact harmful as it is mostly in the form of subsidies through traditional animal source foods, particularly dairy. Lack of public investment has also led to a paucity of open access data and information on energy needs, production costs and processes. Entry costs are, of course, lower for insect-based foods. To improve this situation, public investment should be linked to environmental requirements, environmental considerations should be included in food-based dietary guidelines and food procurement, and naming restrictions for APs should be reduced. Next slide, please. The research agenda on APs is, of course, vast and ranges from assessing their impacts first on environmental outcomes where studies remain exploratory as data are proprietary, also on which APs make sense and where and when, and then of course on social outcomes. Will APs increase global inequities? 
One study suggests that they could create 83 million new jobs, but how many of the 1.3 billion livelihoods linked to the sector would be lost? There's also much research to be done on AP's nutritional value, health impacts, taste, and cost. Some micronutrients and minerals in meat and fish are not found in APs, and they vary in nutritional content and in their attractiveness to consumers. Efficacy and effectiveness studies will be needed. Research should not end until we have an environment where the healthiest and most sustainable diets are the easiest to choose by everyone. Last slide, please. I would like to end on a note of collaboration. While APs are mostly pursued in high-income countries, International collaboration with low-income countries is needed now for low-income countries to engage in research, framework development standards, labeling the works. The stakes are much higher in low-income countries, both regarding potential benefits and risk of failure. This table shows suggestions on where to start with collaborative research programs to fill to fulfill the innovation's promise, and they range on co collaboration on knowledge gaps, consumer awareness, labeling, and production facilities. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Claudia. That was great and really interesting to see this kind of new and old area uh, in terms of different types of proteins. Uh, I'd like to also, uh, this will be, we have one final presentation. Uh, and I would like people, the audience to, uh, I, you know, like to have the audience submit uh, their own questions. So you can do that through the channels that we mentioned before on ipfree.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, where you're uh, watching, or on X, formerly known as Twitter, by using the hashtag uh, AskIpfree. So for the last presentation, uh, we have Jeff Leroy who is the senior, a senior research fellow at IPFRI, and he'll be talking about the importance of animal source foods uh, in uh, sustainable and healthy diets. Over to you, Jeff. Thank you, Michael. Waiting for the slides to come up. There we go. Next slide, please. So I'll start with uh, giving you a brief overview of the nutritional characteristics of animal source foods. Uh, animal source foods are nutrient dense. They contain, have high concentrations of bioavailable nutrients, such as vitamin A, iron, zinc, riboflavin, and others. They provide high quality protein. This has been mentioned already, uh, which provide all the essential amino acids. And amino acids are the building blocks our body needs to build protein. They provide some unique nutrients uh, that cannot be found in plant uh, source foods, such as vitamin D, B12, um, and some long chain uh, fatty acids. And it's all, also the only source of bioactive compounds. And, and I believe the research on that is, is just emerging. Important is also that small quantities of meat or fish can increase the absorption of iron from plant sources. So not only do they provide nutrients, they also help with the absorption of nutrients from plant sources. So in some relatively small amounts of animal source foods can really contribute substantially to dietary adequacy. And several of the nutrients essential for humans are only present in animal source foods. Next slide, please. So let's look at uh, some of the critical phases in life. Uh, nutrient needs depend on where you are in the life course and animal source foods based on their nutritional characteristics can play an important role uh, during these critical periods. Next slide, please. 
So during pregnancy and lactation, uh, we have obviously fetal growth and milk production requiring energy and, and specific nutrients. The next phase in life, uh, infancy and young childhood, again, we have rapid growth and developments. Uh, many children in low and middle income country settings um, face recurring infections, which increase nutrient needs. And uh, young children have um, a limited gastric capacity, which means that every meal they consume uh, should be very nutrient dense and animal source foods are an excellent source of foods for, for that particular reason. During uh, adolescence, we have a second phase of rapid growth and development uh, requiring nutrients. And then at old age, uh, many people suffer from sarcopenia and frailty, again, where uh, animal source foods can play an important role. Importantly, on the right-hand side of the slide, um, only animal source foods uh, are sufficiently nutrient-dense to meet nutrient requirements in that early uh, period of life. Next slide, please. Of course, uh, nothing is uh, ever completely positive. There are some known negative effects on human health, and I'm focusing on three aspects here, uh, processed meat, unprocessed red meat, and saturated fatty acids. Next slide. Processed meats are meats that have been cured, smoked, salted, fermented. And uh, the evidence is quite clear that those are carcinogenic to, to humans. There is also evidence of an association with cardiovascular disease. Unprocessed red meats are uh, meats from uh, mammals, muscle meat from mammals such as beef, pork, goat. Uh, the evidence on uh, the effect on cancer are much less clear. Um, IARC uh, classifies these as probably carcinogenic, and there are associations with cardiovascular disease and type diabetes, but um, this evidence is, is not well established. Um, what seems clear, though, is that uh, what makes it worse is when you grill the meat, when you roast the meat, and what um, moderates the negative effect is when uh, these red meats are part of a, a balanced diet. And then finally, saturated fatty acids are found in high-fat dairy, in red meat, uh, but also in plant sources like palm oil. And those have been associated with higher serum cholesterol and cardiovascular risk. Again, associated, um, I don't think the evidence for a causal link um, is, is well established. One key limitation here is that uh, most of this epidemiological evidence comes from uh, high-income countries. Next slide. And then moving from uh, human health to uh, planetary health, um, sustainability. And um, as many of the previous speakers have alluded to already, this is a, a very complex issue. And I'm just highlighting a few of the, the issues here related to water, land, climate, soils, and biodiversity. Next slide. So when it comes to water, uh, negative effects relate to uh, the extensive use of blue water for feed production and then runoff of uh, manure, nutrient leaks, and pollution. Climate change has been mentioned. 14 to 15% of um, anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions um, are due to livestock. When it comes to biodiversity, um, things are not as clear. There's clearly the negative effect well-established of um, habitat destruction, tropical forests uh, that is being destroyed for animal production. But in other areas, um, livestock play a key role in maintaining semi-natural um, grasslands. For land use too, uh, we have the negative effects of um, animal feed competing with crops that can be directly consumed by, by humans. 
But at the same time, cattle, especially ruminants, um, can upcycle inedible materials to high quality protein that can be consumed by humans. And then finally, when it comes to soils, um, we know that excessive manure application leads to emissions, leaching, runoff, um, and, and pollution of, of water. A positive side there is that livestock manure obviously can be used also to increase the fertility of soils. Next slide. So in summary, um, this is um, there is no clear um, answer. Uh, context matters enormously. Uh, there is no one size fits all solution uh, for human nutrition or for planetary health. What I think most people agree with is that um, a dietary shift is needed. Uh, populations who currently consume limited or no animal source foods, an increased intake in these populations would definitely benefit the nutrition and health status of those populations. And there are some important barriers to overcome there. Affordability is one, food safety is there, and um, establishing functioning markets is a third one uh, that I've listed here. And then populations uh, often in high income countries consuming high to very high animal source food quantities, um, intakes there should actually um, go down and that would benefit both uh, human health, but also planetary health. One thing I wanted to highlight very quickly is that um, we've talked a lot about protein, um, but in, in general, one can say there are some exceptions, obviously, but in general, we can say that that is not the primary nutrient of concern in low and middle income countries. And then finally, uh, a call for innovation. This has been mentioned by others as well. Uh, we, we clearly need uh, more efficient and environmentally sensitive animal source food production systems. Thank you so much. Excellent. Uh, thanks a lot, Jeff. That was really good. And again, putting kind of the importance of animal source foods uh, in a context and why it's so important, particularly in uh, low and middle income countries. So with that, I'm excited where we really heard kind of a, a wide ranging overview. Uh, and now we'd like to get to the kind of discussion part of our session. Uh, and I'd like to introduce the four speakers and maybe we can uh, spotlight them as well. Uh, so they can say hello, and then I'll start to answer the question, ask the questions. But we have uh, Dennis Rinders, from, who's the commercial director for uh, uh, EMEA Boavir. Uh, we have uh, Mary Mobile uh, Kariuki, who is a technology and innovations expert at the African Union Inter-African Bureau for Animal uh, Resources. Uh, we also have uh, Fabrice de Klerk, who is science director at the EAT, but also a uh, CGIR scientist as well. Uh, and we have Stephanie von Stein, who uh, works at the Good Food Institute and is their global strategic engagement lead. Welcome all. Uh, I hope you've been able to take some notes and do some thinking, looking at how do we connect the pieces of all these uh, different uh, presentations as well. Uh, and I'd like to start with uh, Dennis, Dennis Rinders. Uh, could you tell us a bit about uh, EMEA Boavir technology and its success to date? Uh, what challenges do you face in scaling up this technology? Uh, and what support do you believe is required to enable in farmers to uh, uh, move to more sustainable livestock food systems, particularly in high-income countries? And, yeah, maybe a little bit is how do you relate to some of the recommendations that Fiona mentioned? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, look, for, uh, 
as DSM Firmini we developed uh, Bovair, the, the first EU-approved methane inhibitor with uh, with a positive environmental impact. So this is uh, this has been a process that we started in 2008, and we received the, uh, the European approval in uh, in uh, April 2022. But this is certainly not an, an EMEA uh, product in that sense. Uh, we intend to uh, register the product around the globe and make it available uh, for high income and low income countries. Um, today, it's approved in 48 countries around the globe, including most of Latin America and also a few countries already in, uh, in, in Asia. Um, and we, we intend to make that uh, product available as widely as possible. Um, how does how does the product work? Uh, well, I said it is a methane inhibitor, but it is also an enzyme inhibitor. So it works very specifically on the methane producing bacteria in the, in the rumen of the cows uh, or sheep or, uh, or goats. Actually, it works on all ruminants. Um, and we feed uh, a quarter of a teaspoon uh, per, per cow per day. And that effectively gets you in a dairy animal around 30% methane reduction. And in a beef animal, that would give you around 45% methane reduction. And if you feed more of the product, you will get higher reductions. Um, and there's clearly also an interaction with the feed and the quality of feed, um, which is something that we have, have uh, learned through more than 60 uh, trials that we have executed across the globe uh, with research institutes uh, in North America, South America, Oceania, Europe, etc. Uh, so it's very well researched um, uh, and now increasingly approved for use in, in many of the markets. Um, today, I would say uh, most of its use is in the more developed markets, so the high income markets. So we're, we're at the moment feeding around 100,000 uh, cows in, in Europe and Australia mainly but also already uh, some in, in Latin America. Um, and yeah, we hope to expand that uh, quickly. And we, we see certainly that uh, some of the, the more international uh, dairy players like Nestle, Danone uh, are supporting that, but also more national or European players like Friesland Campina and Arla. Uh, but we're also working with, for example, uh, retailers like Coles in Australia, where it's part of their carbon neutral beef uh, uh, proposition um, to make sure that, that these animals are having the lowest methane emissions uh, possible. So on the one side, I would say uh, the technology is proven. The science is there. We're getting it uh, uh, through the chain to the farmers. There's, there's not much that they... Uh, have to do other than than uh, call their feed supplier in order to order the product. Uh, but if you talk about the challenges in scaling, uh, on the one side there um, there is clearly the need uh, for for support from governments around the world for proven scientific technologies to really get support. There's also much more out there that is not yet proven. Um, and, and yeah, it's clear that we need this level of trust from the authorities to also convince society, to convince consumers um, uh, that we can make uh, uh, animal livestock more sustainable and truly reduce these methane emissions. Okay, great. And yeah, this is where, 
Sorry, go ahead, Michael. We'll, we'll we'll come back to a couple of other questions later on, but let's let's get some of the other panels and uh, sure. panelists involved. Uh, Mary, uh, I think uh, are you there, Mary? Yes. Okay, great. You know, we heard from a, a professor Apollinaire, uh, really talking about the difference of you know what's driving change in some of the livestock narratives in the the global north, but you know in Africa. You know, how do you see it playing out? And you know, you you know, Fiona presented some of these technologies that exist to reduce methane emissions. How relevant do you see uh, these technologies for farmers in in Africa? Uh, and do you agree with the conclusion of the breakthrough report that there's a need for greater investment in adaptation rather than mitigation? Thank you very much, Michael. And uh, I think, um, and good afternoon to everybody who's joined us today. I think everything that has just been presented by uh, Dr. Polan and Fiona really falls into place and even in terms of what Africa wants to do for its continent. And if we recall the science, technology and innovation strategy for Africa 2024, really called upon the continent of Africa to use science, innovation and technologies as tools for change, really to drive actions that will change knowledge-based economies, especially for uptake of technologies for smallholder farmers being well encouraged. However, we need to be very keen into the actions that we want to do because we want to have technologies that are easily accessible, technologies that can be utilized in an easy and quick way, technologies that are not too expensive for the smallholder farmers, and technologies that African governments can take into you know, make them to be adopted without having another heavy burden in terms of production costs or any other action that will result to an increased uh, a cost to the farmer at the end of the day. So it's very important to see that uh, you are well aware that, I mean, Africa is the most, six out of the 10 vulnerable countries come from Africa in terms of climate change actions. And African countries have been committed to lower their carbon economies as well as have climate resilient actions. So Fiona highlighted technologies that really speak to what we want to do. Technologies that are going to, in terms of the biodigesters, technologies in terms of even fodder service services and coming up with breeds that are efficient animals. This is very critical. And I think that's what uh, Apollonaire raised. We need to come up with animals that are good converters, efficient animals, reduce the number of animals that we have on a farm, but we make them more productive. This is very critical, especially in Africa, where we have large numbers of animals as opposed to the efficiency of the animal. This is something that can be easily taken up. And I just looked at a case study that was done in Ethiopia, they're calling it the green milk, where they've now introduced very good animals, efficient animals. They are doing waste management, they're looking at fodder services, you know, using feed additives, looking at coming up with dairy service hubs. And this has reduced the carbon footprint per kilogram of milk by half. And this is really important to say that this can be done in the right way, in the right context of the African uh, production systems. So this is something that we can call upon, you know, all of us coming together. And when Dennis was talking about the innovation, the, the, the methane, I think inhibitor, you know, feed additive action, this is something that can be placed on the table for the African countries to have understanding. This is something that is available. Can we create awareness 
to the African governments and say, you know, there is something that we can use that can reduce the methane production and really be something that will be of benefit for the entire continent. So when we talk about the animal source foods, I think I'll talk about that later. And the alternative protest, that's another ball game for Africa. But uh, Michael, I think let's proceed as we continue the panel. Thank you. Okay, great. Thanks. I would like to get back to the alternative proteins, I think, as well. So Stephanie, uh, I, yeah, we'd like to, you know, following on Mary's comments, you know, can you tell us what position the Good Food Institute takes in terms of the role of alternative proteins in both, you know, uh, you know, high income areas and low income, you know, low and middle income countries? Uh, and what shifts in diets have been seen? And what do you anticipate will be the trends uh, that we see in terms of consumption of animal source foods and alternative uh, proteins going forward? Well, thank you very much for inviting us to uh, speak about alternative proteins and um, on behalf of GFI. I'd like to thank you. GFI is a global nonprofit think tank uh, working to excel at the, accelerate the market and science and regulatory environment for alternative proteins. We have over 200 employees across six geographies globally. Um, in terms of what, how we see alternative proteins in the high income countries and low and middle income countries, we absolutely see them having a place in both um, kinds of environments. They are an essential component of diets in high-income countries for all of the reasons that Claudia outlined, um, and an important additional source of proteins in low- and middle-income countries, even more so in the years to come as climate change continues to wreak havoc on, on harvests and livestock production everywhere, with particularly dire consequences for the global majority. Um, if you want to know about the market, I can share some, some data from um, some of our previous uh, market reports. In the U.S., some forecasts estimate the plant-based meat market could be um, a $30 to $40 billion market by 2030. Globally, banks see, such as UBS and J.P. Morgan forecast global market sizes of $85 billion and $100 billion by 2030 and 2035, respectively. Um, in terms of the low and middle income countries, we see low cost alternative proteins with su sufficient consumer acceptance could reduce malnutrition, improve food security and Im improve climate resilience. Um, there are a, a lot of reasons uh, why we think alternative proteins are important in the worst climate change scenarios where livestock uh, populations are severely impacted. Alternative proteins would provide a substitute for animal proteins and thereby reduce animal feed demand, which would re reduce pressure on prices of staple foods. Proteins are also a, a significant cost driver for malnutrition treatments and alternative protein innovation could help lower costs, though this would require additional R&D efforts. And if there's time, I'd love to talk about a, a, a project in Kenya that I'm particularly interested in uh, having to do with whole biomass fermentation. So I'll let you let me know if that if it's okay to talk about that. Okay, uh, let's go on to, uh, I'm just worried a bit about time for Brees first, and then we'll come back to a couple uh, of others. And I think the, the alternative proteins, you know, those are, some of them are very traditional in, you know, develop, in low and middle income countries. I lived in Laos where, uh, you know, some of the best proteins are from what we would consider alternative proteins. So there's some interesting cases there. Uh, Fabrice, uh, are you there, Fabrice? Yeah. 
I am. I am, Michael. I am. Okay, I can't see. I haven't run away yet. Great. Uh, you know, we we've talked a lot. You know, you and I have talked a lot about wicked problems, and we do face a wicked problem. How are we going to agree, You know, feed a, a growing planet, and particularly in low and middle income countries, uh, without destroying the environment? And uh, you know, how do we overcome this wicked challenge of you know making sure that people have accessible uh, and you know appropriate proteins uh, and micronutrients for, you know, for, for all uh, while reducing the environmental footprint. And how do you see some of the recommendations and what we've discussed today linking up with the upcoming Eat Lancet Report 2.0? Yeah, great. Thank, thanks for that, Michael. So, so yeah, we're in the middle of an Eat Lancet 2.0 with quite a bit of CGIR involvement. Uh, Sonia Bermulins, one of our commissioners, Shakuntala Tilstead has been mentioned is a co-chair, but this year, Namukolo Kovic, whom you all know from ILRI, is one of our commissioners uh, as well, uh, and myself. Hermia Skebreb from UC Davis, who's working at the forefront of many of the, the methane emissions or methane redu reduction strategies, also uh, quite involved. So so in, in, the, in the commission, which we published in 2019, and, and now the revised work that we're starting, we just had a meeting of our commissioners in, in Mexico uh, three weeks ago and began to talk about alternative proteins, I think one one of the things that we all felt quite strongly about is that we we need to be careful around the economic models that are describing increased demand for proteins because those economic models do not take health into consideration. Right? So so those economic models are disaster for health and disaster for climate. So so we really urge that the kind of forecasting work that we're doing use healthy diets as its basis for assessing what population demands might mean and what this might have some implications on, on climate, on environment, as well as, as on health. So that, that's a first, I think, a really important point. You know, what is it that we're working towards? A second, uh, we we do see a critical role for protein transition, but I, I was piqued by what you know Jeff said in his comment. You know that you know protein's not a major issue for LMIC, and I think the the challenge we're also seeing for high income countries is that there's there's no evidence for uh, protein limitations. So so that is there are no protein deficiencies, and so one of the things the commissioners I think felt quite strongly about was reminding us that if we're going to be able to navigate this transition. Uh, transition towards healthy diets that are within environmental limits, we do need to talk about the behavior changes that accompany that. How do we shift both uh, reduce overconsumption part of animal protein in the global north? How do we continue to make it accessible in the, in the global south? But also, I think what's missing from that is the nearly universal need to increase the consumption of, of fruits, nuts, vegetables, whole grains, uh, and uh, plant-based proteins. So, so that behavior change, I think, really has to be part of the conversation. And it's it's a really difficult one uh, to wrap our heads around. Uh, a second, that this is about uh, diversity, flexibility, and, and choice. There, there's no shortage of a diversity of foods that allow us uh, to make that transition. This is not a monotonic uh, diet imposing Mediterranean on everyone. This is about celebrating local choice, but again, bounded by, by health. Uh, on the question of animal, uh, sorry, alternative proteins, uh, the health impacts are, are likely to be the same, maybe slightly better. There's some interesting opportunities for, for fortification that I think are, are certainly worth uh, exploring. There's significant evidence that they can reduce environmental impact. 
but but of course with that you lose the environmental functions that come with animal production systems and i think there's a, there's a fair question to ask about whether one of the challenges in agriculture is the degree to which we have separated plant and animal production uh, important question to think about how alternative protein substitutions might might be used and, and again if these help change behaviors away from overconsumption and they facilitate you know companion foods that are you know protective you know mostly the underconsumed plant-based products then I think there's some interesting opportunities uh, key questions on cultural relevance and cultural sensitivity and, and unfortunately for, for the health impacts one of our big challenges you near know, the lack of uh, longitudinal studies so we really don't have long-term data on them um, and maybe just just one thing to to conclude on Michael for going to the conversation is is that particularly on alternative proteins, I think there's an opportunity to really reflect on what might drive change. You know, particularly if we're talking about beef, uh, there's a climate incentive. Uh, but as uh, Jeff mentioned, uh, you know, grasslands are the most transformed ecosystem on earth with only 30% remaining intact. Uh, there is, I think, interesting potential for livestock management to contribute to grassland biodiversity. Can we talk about alternative proteins and poultry, particularly from an animal welfare point of view? Or, or what about, you know, uh, alternative proteins in the blue food space, you know, tuna in particular, as a food uh, whose uh, production might allow us to reduce pressure on, on marine catcheries, marine uh, fisheries? Uh, I want to I wrap up on one last point, which is something that, that Stephanie, I think, really intrigued me by, is that, you know, we're, we're looking to massive climate challenges uh, and I think it, it's certainly appropriate that we think quite critically about opportunities for adaptation, including, you know, what alternative products might play there. But, but I think we also need to be really cognizant uh, that we need to continue efforts on mitigation. You know, the example that Cloud has shared on mussels and, you know, APs being a solution because of uh, uh, marine toxicity uh, or uh, you know reducing uh, uh, reducing real meat consumption for alternative proteins because of overconsumption, we shouldn't let that mask uh, the real challenges. Right? If if we can't have mussels from the ocean because of toxicity, we need to deal with the toxicity question. So 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 you know alternative proteins for mussels uh, are are hopefully a temporary fix while we do pay significant attention to the environmental challenges that we're confronted with. Okay. Thanks a lot, Fabrice. Uh, we're going to have to sum up, and we're going to—I'm going to invite uh, Charlotte in a second to sum up. But I kind of wanted to go back to Mary really quickly, and then we'll get two final comments from uh, Stephanie and from uh, Dennis. But Mary, what's what's your take on alternative proteins, and what's the interest or engagement from the African Union uh, on alternative proteins? Where does it fall? Okay, thank you, Michael. And I think uh, this is really something that requires us to really drive an agenda that is, I'll go back to the context specific issues in terms of technology adoption and uptake for Africa. And I'll just borrow from just a simple action that uh, we had for the biofortification. This was one of the key actions that were submitted or endorsed for the Africa Union Common Position for Food Systems. So we were to drive an agenda on biotechnology, we were to drive an agenda on biofortification, industrial food fortification, etc. But if you go back to the continent, you'll realize that biofortification has still not gained that kind of momentum to a very high scale. Yes, it's very important, but it hasn't still gained the momentum. And we've actually done some studies on the CADAP 
when we were doing our reporting just recently in the biannual report. So there needs to be that very clear understanding of what does it mean in terms of alternative proteins? Are we replacing? Are we substituting? Are we taking them together? What does it mean for Africa? Because animal source proteins are very important. They come with a cultural context to eat. So it's not really just about having livestock, but there's something cultural about it. There's something about drinking blood, for example, in the pastoralist community at a certain time of celebration. So we need to be very context specific and ask for ourselves, how do we present the alternative protein agenda to the space of the African Union? So I wouldn't be able to give a very straight answer, but this is something food for thought. We need to think about it to see that it's going to be a win-win as opposed to it being completely uh, disengaged and not taken up easily. Thank you. Great, thanks a lot. And then Stephanie, maybe you can come in on that with your example that you were gonna, you wanted to talk about with from Kenya. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you, Mary. I, I agree with everything you've said. And I think that the way uh, forward really is to show um, concrete examples in places where um, alternative proteins are being incorporated um, and also providing jobs. And so one, one um, project I'm very excited about is run by a nonprofit called Essential. And they are making whole biomass fermented proteins to supplement high quality pro protein in Kenya. Uh, right now they're, they're raising money. They've just raised enough money to build a commercial biomanufacturing facility um, in Kenya, they have already hired local engineers and a local project manager. Um, and the, the, the theory of change for the whole biomass fermentation category is that they have very high quality protein, the PDCAS score of 0.9 and above, and they can generate high, large yields of protein, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, regardless of climate change. Um, and so once this facility is up and running and uh, the product is being incorporated into traditionally uh, designed plant-based meat products or uh, whole biomass protein products, I think that will be a, a good proof point for um, folks in in the African Union, hopefully, and, and the, the plan for this NGO is to not just build this one facility, but to build many facilities across East Africa. So that is the, um, the, the example I wanted to share. Great. Stephanie, you still there? Okay, Eric, you're finished, yeah? I think I have my, I, yeah. Did I freeze? I think I froze, so thanks anyway, so that's great. Uh, excellent. So with that, I think one just uh, one last uh, from Dennis, you know, could you just give us kind of a, a quick one minute response about this issue around, you know, if we're going to uptakes, like particularly the technology that you've been doing, what, what support do you need from governors, uh, governments, and what, what do farmers need to really ena enable the uptake of this? One minute. Yeah, so uh, it's clear that this product comes at a comes at a cost. Uh, so farmers need a clear financial incentive, either from the value chain or from governments. And and that incentive can be uh, in the form of subsidy, but it can also be in form of clear targets. 
where those costs are then distributed across the chain. Okay, great. Uh, that's that was very clear and very uh, focused. Yeah, great. you gave me one minute. I thought I'd go for a short version. Yeah, that's excellent. Great, and this really allows us then time to get to some of the questions that the audience has asked on various platforms. So I'm going to uh, start out with uh, Jan. Uh, there's a question to you. Uh, it, it asks, in Germany and Europe, there's arguably a need to reduce consumption of animal products, both for sustainability and health reasons. Uh, there's a strong push for enhancing animal welfare. Does the German un public understand that there's a different narrative for low and middle income countries? And how do you balance those two? Jan, are you still there? I am trying to start here yeah, my video. Um, quite an interesting question. First of all, um, I have to say, we as BMZ, we're um, obviously responsible for the international cooperation side for the development issues. So um, our ministry for, for nutrition issues and agriculture um, is in, in, in charge here. Um, from, from our perspective, I think, um, as I mentioned, um, there is some kind of... Mm, bias or, or or another narrative i'm not sure whether the german public would be enough informed about the different different roles um uh, that the, the livestock has um but as i said um this um would be a question also also um, um for our colleagues from from the other ministry um as you can see we are um in in bmz uh, seeing those different perspectives, and this is why we are engaging in this and and planning to to further promote projects um, with a more um, objective approach, let's say, um, and acknowledging the importance of of livestock also for food and nutrition security in our partner countries. Thank you. Over. Excellent. Thanks, Jan. And uh, I think Apollinaire is still out, uh, but maybe he'll come back and we'll get back to him. Uh, Fiona, there's a couple of questions for you. Uh, the first one is really about the safety and regulatory issues around uh, methane inhibitors. You know, wh what do you see as some of the safety and regulatory issues? And then uh, another question asks about many countries have signed the methane pledge at COP27. Uh, how will that move the needle on speeding up solutions to reduce methane emissions from livestock? Um, okay, um, not being an expert in uh, methane inhibitors myself, I might pass this on to Dennis, who I think could answer oh, a lot more. But I'm, I mean, seriously, across all technologies, there's a need. Um, for further research and um, an investigation into that balance between um, reducing emissions and um, productivity, um, plus also animal welfare concerns. So I, I don't think it's just an issue with uh, methane inhibitors, um, but it's it's something across the technology that needs further further research and I, you know, the research that has been done for many of these technologies, perhaps not so much methane inhibitors, but um, many of the others, they've been, 
the research has been undertaken in controlled environments so it's it's not like being undertaken in real life so there's there's a long way to go in terms of research i mean dennis might be able to add a little bit more specifically about the methane inhibitors um on on the global methane pledge um of course uh all, all these commitments are voluntary but it's it's a start and uh for sure these pledges um are important in gaining momentum and attention to the issues as well as investment and i i think what we've all highlighted is that there is a need for further investment um in in the development of these technologies um but also at the same time in ensuring that uh, communities um and livestock keepers themselves livestock producers are able to adapt to climate change at the same time okay great thanks a lot uh dennis you want to uh, talk about the methane inhibitors and what you see as some of the issues around there yeah sure uh, my pleasure yeah look uh, there are many, many products out there. Um, not all of them have gone through the full cycle of research yet. Uh, um, so it, it's clear that research is still needed. Um, and this is also one of the things, uh, if, if a product truly gets the approval from the authorities, uh, that should also uh, be done in a, through a protocol that then covers all these different aspects of safety, uh, animal welfare, animal health, uh, but also consumer safety, employee safety, and within the EU approval, uh, that is all covered. And with that, uh, basically all those uh, concerns are being addressed. Um, there are certainly still uh, methane inhibitors in development where um, there are uh, questions uh, raised. And uh, I think they should follow that same process of, of applying through the feed additive route in order to A, make sure that the methane reduction claim is valid and that all of these safety concerns are being met. Um, we do also see that in some cases, products try to circumvent that and go through the, the route of feed materials, which is a different type of classification. And then those um, products are not being scrutinized by the scientists uh, for all those different aspects. So I think this is where authorities can definitely support and make a difference in, in clearly doing so. Great, excellent, very interesting. Uh, let's move over to uh, Claudia. Uh, you have a question from Maria, who's communications officer at Bridge to Food. I uh, really liked your presentation and was wondering about, uh, about consumer acceptance of cultivated meat in the EU. Uh, and uh, yeah, and just she mentions that uh, the role of an ecosystem uh, in the advancement of the alternative proteins, this has been a bridge to bridge to foods mission over the years. And we do believe innovation is achieved through collaboration across value chains. So that's really good. So yeah, but what's your, anything about alternative uh, cultivated meats? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure Stephanie will also maybe have uh, some, would have, could add to the response, but basically there are few published studies. I think as uh, I've mentioned, there's just very little research done in this area, um, but surprisingly those two, reports or studies show very high uh, interest in trying cultivated meat, uh, so around 80% uh, done in various places in Europe, um, but again, higher interest uh, by younger 
people or younger, you know, younger respondents and also by more educated respondents. So there's clearly, um, I think those studies also found a lack of understanding what cultivated meat means. Um, so, you know, it's interesting to know that even in high income markets and high income countries, we have a lack of understanding um, of of what alternate, alternative proteins are about. So, and which again, you know, gets me to the importance uh, of working on this topic in in, in lower income markets uh, as well. So if we even see the challenge in higher income markets, but yes, uh, surprisingly high interest to try it. Mm -hmm. uh, great, uh, Stephanie, do you have anything you want to add on to that? Not really. I mean, Claudia is is right um, that younger people are often more open to trying novel things. And I actually have a lot of faith in the next generations for uh, in all sorts of ways in terms of um, working on climate change interventions. I uh, don't know a lot about the consumer studies and particularly on cultivated meat, but I do know there is um, a high interest in um, mainland China uh, for trying uh, cultivated meat. Uh, so that's one thing I can add to that particular question. Okay, great. Uh, I see Apollinaire is not back yet, yeah? I see that he's... He's not there. There's a question for Jeff, I think, that I'd like to throw to him. Uh, there was a question from a MSc student who uh, wonders how much meat is needed to be eaten to cover one's demand for iron, B vitamins in kilograms per week. So very specific, uh, not pounds, but kilograms. <laughs> have that if you want it, Jeff. <laughs> um, I, uh, so the, well, the brief answer is that I, I cannot just uh, respond with a specific number because it depends on, on the age and the physiological status you're in, whether you're breastfeeding or pregnant or whether you're a two-year-old boy or a 15-year-old girl. Um, the Eat Lancet, um, the first um, uh, version is not the right word, but the, the first iteration of it uh, came up with suggested intakes and uh, that has been contested a little bit. I mean, others have said that that does not provide the required um, nutrients for, for, I mean, at least some nutrients. Uh, before handing the mic to uh, Fabrice, who can update this on, on 2.0, I wanted to also make sure that I haven't been misunderstood in my comment about um, proteins being limiting. Um, animal source foods are more than proteins. They provide a lot of micronutrients, minerals, vitamins that are important for human health. So um, the, the risk I see with, with the, the, the label alternative proteins is that we just focus on proteins and there is much more to animal source foods than just the proteins. And that's what I think is important to keep in mind, especially when we talk about uh, populations uh, that are deficient in for some micronutrients. Uh, over to Fabrice. Yeah, great. Fabrice, and there's also a, another question, maybe you have a, an answer to, I'm not sure, but I think it gets back to this, you know, uh, transition, you know, and looking at, you know, in areas where there are reductions in demand, uh, what are the transition plans for, for producers there? And, and how do you balance that? You know, I think they're calling that, they call that the just transition. So do you have yeah. any thoughts on that as well as adding on to what Jeff said? Sure. So, so I mean, what, so what we proposed in Eat Lancet uh, um, and it was that for healthy meat consumption, the range is zero to 200 grams per week. So the question was per week of uh, beef, lamb or pork, zero to 420 grams per week of poultry, zero to 700 grams per week 
of fish for blue foods. So that's zero to 1500 grams or 1.5 kilograms is the maximum level of animal sourced foods. If you want to add dairy, it's zero to 500 grams per day of dairy. If you're thinking about yogurt or cheese, you divide that number by 10. So it's zero to 50 grams per day of, of cheese and yogurt. So, so we're, we're far, we're far from being the vegan vegetarian agenda that people accuse us of being. Uh, but what's important in all those values is the zero, right? There is good evidence that you can be a healthy vegan, you can be a healthy vegetarian, and you can be a healthy omnivore. Uh, so, so the ranges are, are critically important. And within those ranges, uh, there's, there's plenty of evidence that you can be healthy. Jeff's point is really important. Uh, that the you know we provided a, a, a universal reference diet, but as Jeff pointed out, those values will change based on your age, uh, gender, uh, activity level, and uh, and particularly sensitive are the first uh, the first thousand days, uh, where whereas Jeff flagged uh, animal source proteins, particularly dairy, can be particularly important. So so those those were the recommendations we made. We're, we're revising them for Lancet 2.0. Uh, ferocious debates amongst our 12 nutritionists in the commission, but I'll leave that for 2025. Uh, I think that the question of transitions is a really important one. For, first of all, uh, there is good evidence that we will need more food for more people by 2050. So, so from a, an agriculture and farmer lively point of view, we absolutely need that community. Uh, how we do this by ensuring their welfare and livelihoods is, is I think, a key question the CGIR is deeply uh, immersed in. Uh, will we need fewer livestock farmers? That, that's a great question as well. You know, we, if we're using smallholder systems, maybe it's more. If we're focused on industrial systems, then, then yeah, probably fewer. So, so the, the, how we navigate that transition is critical. Uh, there are some fantastic debates about... Uh, how we facilitate that. I know that Danone, for example, is uh, reducing the number of uh, dairy farmers that's, sorry, it's reducing its dairy totals, but it's keeping its farmer numbers constant by shifting many of their farmers into the uh, plant-based protein uh, sector. So, so I think there are opportunities to navigate that uh, transition. Big, right. big challenges, of course, when there are um, uh, significant infrastructure, uh, embedded infrastructure that people invested in. Great. Thanks, Fabrice. Uh, thanks. I'm sorry I'm going to have to cut everyone off. This is really a fascinating discussion. And I really thank the panel and also the speakers for uh, some really great insights uh, in, into these different reports and these different areas that I think are really at the nexus of the key challenges we're facing today uh, in the global food systems and in climate change. So with that, I'd like to hand it over to uh, Charlotte Hebebrand, who is the Director of uh, Public Awareness and, and Communications at uh, IPFRI to give us a quick sum up and uh, conclusion. Thank you so much, Michael. And, and let me also thank all of the speakers for really an incredible uh, set of presentations and, and wonderful discussion. And many thanks to you, Michael, for uh, your expert uh, moderation of the event. I think this is sort of CGIR at its best, right? Because we're we're talking about uh, the research that's coming out of Ilary. We're coming. We're talking about research that's coming out of IFRI and other centers, and we're bringing it together. Uh, and and I think that the challenges before us are so great, and this is where the CGIR actually can be really helpful because there are. The, the, the problem is so big, and many of you have said it, we need solutions from across the board. So we can't just look to the livestock sector. We also need to advance on alternative proteins. Uh, all of these things have to be done 
together. Uh, and, and so just again, congratulations to all of you for I think a really good discussion. Um, we've referred to the wicked problem, right? And this is really the problem for agriculture and food systems at large. It's the, we are at the nexus of climate change, food security, economic livelihoods, uh, nutrition, among other topics. So it is a very, very complicated um, sector, and but it's one that really does require all this attention and many solutions. In the livestock sector alone, we heard about uh, the need to reduce uh, methane emissions through inhibitors, um, but also through biodigesters. We didn't talk very much about the genetics, but that is of course another potential solutions to address emissions. Um, so even in livestock alone, there are many, many different solutions that we need to go after. Claudia, I think outlined really well the, the ongoing research agenda um, that, that we need to do on alternative proteins. Um, so with that, let me say a few things that I think are interesting in terms of this global north, global south um, discussion, right? We, we all know that the the dialogue in the global north is probably relevant for the global north, but not necessarily relevant for the global south. So we need good awareness, I think, on what needs to happen in both parts of the world. Um, and the other thing I would mention there is that we need, you know, it's great to have new technologies, um, inhibitors and other interesting uh, biodigesters. But we really need those technologies to be accessible and affordable also for uh, low income countries. So that is something that we've got to keep our eye on. Um, we did mention some of the issues around regulatory uh, regimes. We know that food safety is, you know, is a big, big topic, a very complex regulatory agenda and the sustainability agenda comes on top of that. So, so I think we really need to pay attention to making sure that promising technologies actually can get taken forward with all due diligence, of course, but that we really pay attention to making these technologies available in many, many countries, if in fact they do offer good solutions. Um, I wanted to mention something about uh, bringing together these different chapters in the breakthrough report um, or the different topics. We've done it for livestock and alternative proteins. I think we should add plant nutrition to that as well. The, the breakthrough, of course, discussed fertilizers, but here we have um, you know, some really interesting ways to link all of these things together. We know livestock produces a lot of uh, important um, uh, uh, plant nutrition in the developing world. In the developed world, we actually have the opposite. We have too much manure coming from some of these uh, um, very massive livestock um, uh, feeding centers, but there may be these biodigesters offer a solution where you can also then pull nutrients from, from that. So I would just think we need to, you know, also keep this focus on, on plant nutrition. Um, so with that, um, the other last topic I, I thought that was also briefly raised, but certainly requires more attention is the behavior um, uh, sort of uh, the communication, behavior change communications, right? And this is of course something that uh, the CG and IFPRI in particular are also spending a lot of time on. Um, we can have all the experts agree on the best technologies and solutions, but unless consumers are really willing to take those up, um, they're not going to go anywhere. So. Um, Thanks everybody for this really, I think, really nice and holistic discussion. Um, so, so many thanks to everybody and looking forward to 
to continuing this, this uh, conversation. Have a great day. Many thanks to our audience for all of your questions. I'm sorry we, we didn't get to all of them. Have a great rest of your day wherever you are.